that said, do you have anything you want to say? I said, actually, I do. Um, my son's not a bad person who's now suddenly a good person. He's always been a good person. He's now well. And those are very different things. You're listening to the Safe Space Stories podcast. Every two weeks, we feature a mental health expert, inspiring team, or impactful individual, bringing you empowering mental health stories and advice on all things well-being. I'm your co-host, Bella. And I'm your co-host, Anushka. Whether you're struggling yourself or want to learn more, this podcast is your motivation to enhance your own well-being and that of those around you, as well as your 24-7 mental health resource. Today's episode has a trigger warning for mentions of depression, substance abuse, and anxiety. If you're in a crisis, please reach out for help. Call 1-800-273-8255. Today, we sat down with a former Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, who is now a national mental health crusader. Uh, my name is John Broderick. Um, I am joining you from uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock in New Hampshire, where I work as Senior Director of External Affairs. For the last six years, John has been traveling and speaking about mental health awareness to around 100,000 students and 40,000 adults. But things weren't always that way. Far before he'd become a mental health advocate, before he even knew what mental health was, things were very different. People my age and certainly my parents' age never talked about mental health. It just wasn't anything you ever talked about. And so I didn't know anything about it. But I didn't really see it either. When I was a kid, you were either in the nut house, as people called it, or you were fine, you were home and walking around. And that was not true, but that's the world I'm from. And so I had two sons, 11 and 13, and mental illness started to affect my 13-year-old son which is something we didn't see because we didn't know what we'd be looking for. And he didn't think he had a mental health problem, which makes sense in a way. How would you know that? Just how you feel, how you react. So he thought it was just him. And it wasn't just him. And as he aged, um, when I look back now, I see it, but I didn't then. So when he went to high school, he started smoking his first year of high school. We didn't know that. He spent a lot of his time in his bedroom. He'd be in there drawing at his desk. Today, I would describe it as withdrawing, but I didn't see that. On the outside, though, things seemed okay. John's son had friends, he did relatively well in school, and got into a great school in New York. But then, things changed. And when he was down there, he started drinking. I mean, really drinking. And... It was very alarming, and he didn't pay much heed. He said, Dad, I don't have a drinking problem. Finally, some of his friends at the college would approach my wife and I, be down there for a weekend, and they were concerned too. But nothing happened. He got his degree. Looking back, I don't know how he did that. I'm in awe of that. He went to a graduate school while living with John and his wife in New Hampshire, which was difficult for John. When he was with us at home, it was pretty clear he was drinking pretty much every day and trying to hide it in disguise, but he really couldn't. 
He would get jobs easily, but he couldn't keep them. And then he was home living with us. And over time, the drinking started to get worse. And so my wife and I finally went to the alcohol experts and told them what I've told you. And I said, what should we be doing? And they said to us rather directly, uh, your son's an alcoholic, which my son thought was ridiculous. Say, Dad, I don't have a drinking problem. If I didn't have these feelings, I wouldn't be drinking. So we convinced him to go to alcohol rehab and nothing was taking. And so finally, my wife and I had a choice to make, the choice they told us. They had a hard decision to make. They either had to watch their son die in their own home from alcoholism or let him try to recover on his own. And we loved our son and we anguished and anguished, but it seemed like there was no choice. So we put him out and it was the hardest thing we ever did in our whole life. And it was the worst thing we could have done. It was well-intentioned, but it was gasoline on fire. And he was on the street for several weeks and Finally, we couldn't take it anymore, and I didn't want that phone call that no parent wants. They went for the other choice. They took him back. And when he came home, he was drinking just as much. Nothing had changed. And I think at that point, he was so frightened that we would put him out again. And he knew he couldn't go out again. And so one night, he'd been drinking, and he assaulted me. The assault put John into the intensive care unit where he spent over a week, unable to speak. His son went to jail. John wasn't allowed to speak to his son for months while he was recovering from his many injuries. My wife was navigating all of that. And she visited him at the jail when I was in the ICU and then she came to the hospital. He was so upset. First visit, they talked by telephone with plexiglass between them. And he said, Mom, is Dad okay? I can't believe I did that to Dad. Just tell me he's going to be okay. In the early days, she didn't know. It was all over the news in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times wrote about it. My doctors went on the Today Show. Uh, when I was in the hospital, I didn't know that. They talked about how I was doing. In any event, when I found out what had happened, I was... In the hospital, I, I had been told by one of the uh, orderlies that I had fallen. I felt really sore for someone who had fallen, but I had no memory of anything else so I accepted it. And finally, after a day and a half out of ICU, my wife told me as best she knew what had happened. And uh, we just cried. I mean, I can't describe that feeling. And uh, I've been a judge and a lawyer my whole life, so I knew what it meant for my son, for us, for his brother. And I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do a single thing. And it was the most hopeless I've ever felt in my life. And he went to the state prison in New Hampshire where he served three additional years, in addition to six months. And I was on the Supreme Court at the time, so 20% of my day job was reviewing appeals from inmates at the prison where my son now lived. Thirty days had now passed. They met with the head psychiatrist. 
And he said, I really like your son. I've really come to know him here. He's very smart. He's very funny. I said, I know that, John. We're in the prison here. He said, I know that. Let me tell you what's going on with your son. He has really serious depression. <clears throat> he has panic attacks at feeling you're about to die and anxiety that are, he said, virtually off the charts. And the only escape he had was alcohol. And it calmed him, so he drank. He said it wasn't illogical, but it wasn't helpful because you just have to drink more and more. It's like a black hole. So he was self-medicating his mental illness. And when he said that to us in that place, uh, we both knew, my wife and I, that we had failed him at some point, at some level. I was, after all, a parent. I should have known something about mental illness. I didn't. And at that point in my life, I thought most mental illness was what it was. And it was basically static and treatment probably didn't help. That's what I thought. I now know that's not remotely true. After about four months, his son would visit twice a week. John recalls one memorable night. Came out that night and hugged us as he always did. He said, Dad, I feel so different. I said, what do you mean different? He said, well, I can sleep through the night. I haven't done that since I was a kid. I, I can focus, Dad. My mind's not racing all that. I'm teaching at the prison now. And I said, what are they doing for you? He said, well, I see a counselor pretty regularly. And I take medication at night and in the morning, Dad. Changed my whole life. He was paroled after three years, and the officers came to interview him and his wife. They put a camera about eight inches from my face and said, do you have anything you want to say? I said, actually, I do. Um, my son's not a bad person who's now suddenly a good person. He's always been a good person. He's now well. And those are very different things. And my son, who was drinking every day for years, has not had a drop of alcohol in over 15 years. He said, Dad, you could leave me a liquor store overnight. I wouldn't drink. I might have a Coca-Cola, but I'm not that guy, Dad. I don't have that tongue. Initially, John went back to work as a judge. Until about six years ago, John began working on a campaign, the same one that brings him here today, around sharing the five most common signs of mental illness, called the Five Signs Campaign, which is linked in the episode notes. Most of us know the signs of a heart attack or a stroke. At least we know some of them. And most of us didn't go to medical school. So there must have been a reason we learned that. And it was to save people we cared about. And so Barbara Van Dalen, a psychologist in Maryland, came up with this Five Signs campaign. Over the last five and a half years, he's spoken around 680 times in four states. One of his most memorable talks was one of the most surprising. I spoke at a prep school in New England, one of the best prep schools in the United States. It's about 65,000 a year to send your child there. And they had asked me to come up and speak. They wanted to have a mental health awareness day. I thought back when I was in high school, I don't think a mental health awareness day would have been on my top 10 list, but it was at this school. So I spoke to all the students, or hundreds of them. And when I finished speaking, the senior boy who introduced me that morning asked this question of all of his classmates. It says, anyone in this auditorium this morning, he said, who has a mental health problem or someone you know or love 
has a mental health problem, would you please stand up? Now, I was early on this campaign. I was learning every time I went out, but I didn't expect many people or any people would have the courage to stand up at that place. After about 30 seconds, all but about 25 kids were standing, or hundreds of students standing. I thought to myself, it's been hiding in plain sight. Why are we talking about it? Flashing forward to today, John fights against the stigma on mental health and seeks to spread resources. He wants the conversation on mental illness to never be what he experienced growing up. The world I'm from, nobody ever reacted to it. We just looked the other way. That's not the answer. And so if you know somebody who's suffering, there's no perfect way to start the conversation. But if it's someone you know and love, I think you should say, are you okay? You don't seem like yourself. I'm worried about you. Can we talk about it? And be supportive, not judgmental. And it's probably not going to be one conversation, maybe many. But I want the attitude towards mental illness to change, and it will when people understand what it is. My son, you know, says to me, he's taught me a lot. I love him. He said to me one day, he said, Dad, everyone with a mental health problem, I don't care what it is, I don't care what they are, they have two things in common. I said, what is that? He said, well, number one, they didn't ask for the mental health problem. That's true. And number two, they don't deserve the mental health problem. That's true too. So if you accept those two things, why do we stigmatize it? One little girl came up to me one day after I'd spoken, she was crying. <clears throat> she was telling me about her own depression and she was ashamed of it. And I said to her, what color are my eyes? Can you tell? She said, they look brown to me. I said, they are brown. I said, do you think I chose that color? I would have chosen blue eyes, but I didn't know what asked me. I'm born with brown eyes, that's it. And if brown eyes become a problem and they get stigmatized, I'm in trouble. But I didn't choose them. You didn't choose your depression. When John grew up, other health issues were stigmatized too. Thinking back on his childhood and what has since changed, he's hopeful for how we talk about mental health to change too. I'm old enough to remember when my mother used to whisper the word cancer in my house. She would whisper the word cancer. And as a kid, I thought, well, maybe if she says it out loud, I could get cancer. I have no idea why we're not saying it. And some people, it turns out, weren't as ripe as my mother. They would say he or she has the C word. Seems silly now. It wasn't then. In my childhood, a lot of women died of breast cancer in their 40s. No one ever told you that. They just said she died prematurely. Uh, 300,000 women last year in America had breast cancer. Almost all those women will live a full life. You know why? Because we all grew up. We said breast cancer out loud and we started doing research. The same is true for HIV AIDS. Everyone died early along. Now people talk about it. They have the cocktail. Most of them will live a normal life. Why are we, why are we always behind on mental health issues? However, it's not easy to make a change. As John says, it's a bit like the chicken and the egg problem. When there's no stigma, people will be willing to talk. But if they don't talk, 
and we don't educate people how widespread the problems are, the stigma will persist. Additionally, dialogue in the media has a ways to go. A 2016 study published in Health Affairs that analyzed a sample of 400 news stories covering mental illness from 1995 to 2014 found that 55% of the stories mentioned violence, an emphasis on violence which is not proportional to actual rates of violence among those who have mental illness. What John would like to see the media spotlighting more is data on mental health in adolescents. There's one study in particular John wants to highlight. Every two years, the CDC issues an anonymous questionnaire with three or four of their questions relating to mental health. In 2018 to 2019, 46% of high school girls reported that they were depressed, and 25% of boys. Approximately one in six youth reported making a suicide plan. Can you imagine if 46.6% of high school girls had COVID nationwide? It would be a national public health emergency. It'd be all over the front page of every paper. But it's okay, apparently, if young people have depression. It's not okay. And I'm just tired of the secrecy and the shame and the shadows. There are so many bright and capable, productive people who are working with you and around you every day, going to school with you. It could be the top student in your class. And we act like it's one person somewhere. It's one out of five people everywhere. I want people to have the courage to speak out. In March 2021, John spoke to Benjamin Drews, a professor in Roslyn Center Chair in Mental Health at Emory University. I asked him a simple question. I said, Doctor, could you rate the mental health system in America on a 1 to 10 scale? One being not very good, 10 being great. Where is it? He said, John, I can't answer that. I said, can I ask you why? He said, oh, sure. He said, we don't have a mental health system in the United States. He said, we have fragments. We have a patchwork. If you live on either coast and you have money and you're patient, you'll get help. Everyone else? We don't inspire or reward people to go into mental health. We don't pay them enough. Psychiatrists are among the lowest paid medical professionals in the country. We don't reimburse them at the same rate that we reimburse orthopods and neurologists or OBGYN docs. I, I honestly believe the reason we don't have a mental health system in our country, and the reason there are families and young people and old people too living in the shadows, is because nobody really understands it. Nobody really understands it, and they don't believe treatment works. And they may believe that people who have mental health problems are somehow not as good or as talented as they are, which is total nonsense. So many people I've met who have mental health problems are amazingly smart, amazingly successful, but they're living in the shadows because they don't want you to change your mind about them. I mean, mental health now, mental illness, is, it's starting to mature, but it, it's not going to get anywhere unless your generation. Seriously, I'm so proud to be on this Zoom with you. It's your, your generation is focused on it. You know what I'm saying is true, and you're going to be in power here. And, and so you need to make this a high priority.
If you're diagnosed, God forbid, with breast cancer, within 48 hours, you're seeing a doctor, you're in a protocol. If you have a son or daughter with chronic mental illness, who do you call? Who do you call? How long do you wait? Who pays for that? And for how long? People need to raise their voices and their level of impatience. You know, you have, you have athletes now like Michael Phelps, right? He's a 128 gold medals, he has depression. Uh, Simone Biles, right? Uh, Naomi Osaka. Uh, it, Prince Harry is talking about his depression. That's how change happens. We all have to take a risk, but believe me, the reward for taking the risk will be exponentially greater. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Safe Space Stories is brought to you by Safe Space, a youth-led, mental health-focused organization that empowers young people to engage openly with their local schools and communities. Learn more at safespace.org. If you want to share your own story or learn more about Safe Space Stories, please visit us and contact us at safespacestories.org. And finally, please share this podcast with your friends, family, or anyone else you think could benefit Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy it and subscribe. We hope to see you next time.